mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Notice the next word. Wherefore, it's important, because it points us back to these verses and reminds us that there is a basis, there's a reason for what he's going to tell us to do now. We continue. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in, your, in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, please open our minds, our hearts, our eyes to behold this wonderful truth of your word, understand it clearly, and live in light of it. I pray that our time in the word would not just be a practice we do on Sunday morning, nor do I, I, I pray that this would just be uh, something people listen to and go their way. I pray that this would be a day when lives are changed because we hear from God and we respond to him and allow him and his word to take plant and root in our life and bear fruit. So God, do what I cannot do, and I pray that your spirit would be able to work freely and that those listening would hear and understand and follow, and I'll thank you for how you'll work this morning, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A restaurant reopens in the area. You have no interest in going back to this restaurant because of your previous experience. Now, I don't know what you had, you had or what happened, but maybe you felt the food wasn't all that great, or maybe the service was terrible, you know, had a bad waitress, or... Perhaps the place wasn't clean. I mean, you, know, you went around and everywhere you look, it's like, oh, I don't want to ever eat in this place again. For whatever reason, you don't want to step foot in this, in this restaurant, even though it's opened again. But a few days after the doors open, you're found walking in and finding a place to sit and eat. Why? You're going to give them another chance. Well, there's probably a reason behind that. Maybe a friend went and they... Uh, and they give you a glowing report that things have changed. It may be that uh, you're just a nice guy or girl and you want to support local businesses. And so you decide, ah, even though it was bad, I'm going to go in again. But, but perhaps, perhaps the reason you're seated at a table on this particular day is because of the big sign in the window that says, under new management. You're willing to believe that changes have been made, hopefully with the food, if that was bad, or the service or whatever, or it's cleaner than it was before. And the reason you believe it's different is because it's under new management. Do you know when you got saved, many wonderful things happened? There are so many things that we couldn't even give a list this morning of all the changes that God made. But one thing is true. You are under new management now if you're part of the family of God. All things are new, the Bible speaks about. Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and it was an interesting thing he said to them because they were religious men, very religious men. They were highly respected in the Jewish community, 
they were people that people looked up to, and Jesus said these words to them in John 8, 44, Ye are of your father, the devil. Now, let me tell you something. That didn't go over too well. But he continued to talk about how that they were following the lust of their father. The truth of the matter is, according to the Bible, before someone is saved, they're in a different family. In fact, the Bible talks about someone, when they get saved, being adopted. The truth is, it wasn't just the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were of their father or the devil. Quite frankly, all men are. Now you say, I don't believe that. Well, then you disagree with God because in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul wrote about, under inspiration, the condition of people before they were saved, he said this, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world. According to, now listen to this, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, was the prince of the power of the air. It is Satan. See, the truth of the matter is, all men are born into a different family, and they need to be born into or brought into or adopted into a new family. All men, because of their sin, are born into the family of, if you would, the devil, and the only way to change that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And when a person receives Jesus Christ, he is now part of a new family and he's under new management. And God wants things to change. God desires that, th that things happen in your life. In fact, God expects change in your life. And so as we read this morning, it's kind of interesting that verse 12 points back to what has been written about what Jesus did and how he provided a way for all men to be saved. By the way, those verses tell us how a person is saved, ultimately, because it talks about how Jesus Christ came to this earth. He came to this earth not to just live a good life and be a good example, although he was. He came to this world and, to, and, and into existence. He came into this place because he was going to provide a way for men to be saved. He was going to provide a way for men to have their sins forgiven, to become part of the family of God, because all men are part of the wrong family, and the only way they can change that is if God does it for them. And he did that. God, Jesus Christ, came down to this earth, was born, lived a life without sin. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose again the third day. It's called the gospel in the Bible. And Jesus Christ provided the way by his death, his burial, and his resurrection for all men to receive the gift of eternal life. It's offered as a gift. It's offered freely. You can't win it. You can't earn it. You can't gain it by doing certain works. The only way you can get it is by receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the only way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts chapter 16 and verse 31 tells it and puts it quite frankly and puts it very succinctly for us this morning. And if you've never been saved, then the truth is you're not under new management. But if you are, if you're part of the family of God, and that would be at least a great majority of those in the room this morning, at least from the testimonies that I have heard over the years of being here, then if you're part of the family of God and you're his, God wants you to act like someone that's under new management, just like you would expect a place of business to be different because the management has changed. In fact, that's why they put the sign in the window, because people weren't coming because of the former management. So now we're under new management. Things are different, and God wants it to be the same way in your life. This morning, I've got for you four things that we find in this passage that God, want to be, God wants to be different in your life, that God wants to see in your life, that God wants to observe from your life. It's really simple because the passage lays them out pretty clearly for us, but just four very simple words but not simple things to do. In fact, quite honestly, when you look at these four things, you're, you're going to have to say, there, there is no doubt about it, you're going to have to say, wow, I've got work to do. Because these things are things that we all battle with and struggle with if you're part of the family of God. But Christians aren't perfect. Christians don't, don't do everything that's right all the time. And so they need to change, and God says that they can. You can change, I can change for the glory of God. And there are four things that he brings out to us here in this passage that, quite frankly, may not be easy to do, but they're right, and with God's help, you can. So what does God lay out for us? 
look at our passage again. Let's begin right where we, uh, we said the wherefore is found in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. First word is obedience. Obedience. Oh, you were trying to guess what the word was. All right. That's fine. That's okay. But if you didn't get that, it is the word obedience. Now, let me share a number of things that we need to know about this and we find in these verses. And we'll probably spend more time in this word than, than the others. So don't get too afraid if, you know, like the clock goes around. You're not watching it anyway, right? So it doesn't matter what time we end. All right. Obedience. Now you say, well, well what is the lesson and where does God teach this? Well, if you look at verse 12, we have that word wherefore. It points us back. And let's say, first of all, that obedience has been patterned for us. You look at Jesus Christ, and it's kind of interesting how verses 5 to 12 are found in this chapter because verses 5 to 12 point to the verses behind, in front of them, verses 1 through, 1 through 4, 1 through 5, because the truth is we're to have the mind of Jesus Christ, and he talks about being like-minded in the verses before. What's interesting is that the author doesn't let it get away from verses 5 to 12 in Jesus Christ. When he starts verse 12, he says, this is related back to that, so pay attention. So what truth? In verses 1 to 4, verses 5 to 12 were to tell us about the mind of Christ and how to be like-minded. In verse 12, it points back and he says, look at Jesus Christ. Well, what did Jesus Christ do? He obeyed. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. He obeyed all the way to death. Remember Jesus Christ in the garden when he prayed? Not my will, but thine be done. There was this heart, this attitude of obedience. It's found in verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became, it's in the word, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So as we begin verse 12, and as he's going to tell these believers, hey, look, you're my beloved. I love you because I have, I have taught you the word. You came to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and God has used me to, if you would, start this church. I have an affection for you. And he says, because I love you, I'm going to tell you, you need to obey. In fact, you need to keep obeying. And he says, the basis for it, the reason is because Jesus was obedient and he patterned this matter of obedience for our lives. So although Jesus didn't come just to be an example, he's a perfect example of someone who obeyed. Someone who obeyed no matter what. He did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. In fact, this is my beloved son, what happened on the day of his baptism, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus patterned this matter of obedience. He set aside his rights to do the will of the Father, and that's what obedience is. You know what? Obedience is doing what you're told, when you're told, uh, with a right attitude. I always like to bring those things out. In fact, we'll talk about attitude in the verses that follow, but Obedience is really doing that. It's not just doing what you're told, but it's doing it with a right attitude. You know, someone, here's a kid told to take out the trash. So, um, you know, because he was watching his favorite program on TV or something like that, and he didn't want to do it, but he did. And if mom said, hey, change your attitude, he said, well, I'm doing what you told me. Nah, really. That's not the attitude of obedience. You know, if it was, then Jesus Christ would have patterned something far different on the cross. But he was saying things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was just a, a humble spirit that said with, with attitude and heart, I'm going to do exactly what the Father wants. And that was patterned for us. And that's what we're supposed to follow. But you know, it's not just patterned for us in this passage, but it's to be perpetual. Ooh, look at what it says there in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have, and what's the word before this? Before obey. Always obeyed. This is an amazing thing. You know what he could say about this church? You always do what I tell you to do. Now, I, I don't know how many pastors can actually say that about, about their, the churches they work with, you know? But that's an amazing thing. It truly is. These people, I don't know, must have, first of all, respected Paul enough that they're willing to listen to follow the things and instructions that he gave. But without a doubt, it's the fact that they were surrendered to God 
And as a result, they realized that what Paul was teaching them was truth from God. And so here was their attitude. I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do all the time, Paul. As long as you direct me according to God's word and according to God's truth, I'm going to have this obedient spirit. And that is, it's supposed to be perpetual. It's something we do all the time. You know, obedient, your parents aren't happy if you do half the things you tell them in a day. Did you know that? Now, they actually might be overjoyed if you do half the things if you haven't been doing anything. But the truth of the matter is, what God wants and God desires is that I be an obedient Christian all the time. Do you know what we often do with Scripture? Well, maybe you don't, but you know what people often do with Scripture? They pick and choose. And sometimes what we do is we look at the Scripture and say, Oh, I don't really like that verse. That's not really a good one because I'm not doing that. But I like this verse because I'm doing this one. And, and I like this one too. And the truth is I'm doing pretty well. But what Paul brings out, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. He says, look, I want you to obey, and I want you to keep doing it. And keep at it, and I want you to do it all the time. And that, my friends, is the attitude God wants us to have about obedience if we're part of the family of God. I'm not just going to obey God today. I'm not just going to obey God in the things that I like because God's going to ask me to do things I don't like. You know, for a child, I'm not going to obey my parents just in the things that I like to do. I mean, if my parent asked me to go to, to McDonald's and get a Big Mac and, and enjoy a good lunch, a good lunch. <laughs> well, that's questionable. But enjoy a, a lunch with them and, and, and go out and say, man, I'm more than happy to obey in that. But take out the trash. Eh, I don't know about that. You can't pick and choose. We need to have this attitude that all the time, every time, I'm going to obey. Whether I like it, whether I don't, it is to be perpetual. You've always obeyed, and he just encouraged them to keep going and, and keep going on and keep doing the things that are right. By the way, it requires that we be principled. Look at what he says in that. Love this. Not as in my presence only. See that in the middle of the verse? But now much more in my absence. See, what was Paul saying there? Well, he was saying this. When you're watched, sometimes you act differently than when you're not being watched. You know, here, here's, a, here's a teacher who tells the kids, all right, now I want you to do this homework assignment page, whatever, and start working on this. There's like 10 questions you're supposed to answer them. I have to leave the room for a couple minutes. Teacher should never tell her kids that. But anyway, a teacher says that, right? So what happens when the kids leave, when the teacher leaves the room? Yeah! Wads, yeah. Well, no, they don't have paper anymore. It's, they throw computers now, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know what they throw. I don't know what they do. But here's, here's the truth of the matter is, it's when the teacher's there, everyone's going to be diligently doing it. But there's going to be someone in that room when the teacher leaves. It throws the pencil down, is doing something different, or whatever it happens in classes. You say, you say why? Because, because when you know someone's watching, you have a tendency to do it. And here's the thing. You know what's interesting? That didn't just happen in school. You know what happens in work? How, how many of you ever someone that works when the boss is there and they don't work when the boss is gone? Yeah, you have people like that? Yeah, bosses coming in. Oh, I got to get going. I got to be done. And then they're doing things. Man, they look like the best worker that has ever worked for this company. And then as soon as the boss is gone, it's kind of like, yeah, it's time for a break. Yeah. It is amazing how sometimes people obey only when they know they're being watched. But here's the truth that God tells us in his word. You're always being watched. Everything the scriptures talk about, everything is naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That, that God sees us all the time, every time. So, so here's the truth. There's, there's never a time when we don't need to be obeying because someone's always watching. But that isn't the truth he brings out. Paul says this. He says, look, you've obeyed whenever I've been around, but you also had this attitude. You're... you're whole spirit about you you're you're um wow it you have character because you've i'm asking you now to continue in this obey when i'm not around whatever just do that which is right and god wants us to have that kind of that kind of spirit about us god wants us to have that kind of character about us 
God wants us to be principled people who do what's right no matter what anyone thinks, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone does. God wants us to be people who stand against the crowd and do that which is right. God wants us to be people that when we're at church, we're doing that which is right. God wants us to be principled people at all times. You know, it's a practical thing. If you look at verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I got to explain this. Some people love to take this verse and tell you you have to work in order to be saved. But the Bible gives a message completely different than that. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The same man who wrote that wrote this verse. Was Paul contradicting himself? No, he wrote to the church at Ephesus the very plain truth that a man is saved not by what he does, but he's saved by faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Christ alone. There's nothing I can do to win, gain, or keep my salvation. It is a gift that God has given to me, and it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. The same man who wrote this verse in Romans chapter 5 said, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. People are saved not by what they do. They're saved by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you think that you're getting to heaven by the things that you do and the way that you've lived, then my friends, you are trusting in the wrong thing to get you to heaven because works will never get you there. The only way you can be saved is realize you can't be saved unless you accept the gift of eternal life that God offers through Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross for your sins. Now that is the truth. So then why did Paul say, work out salvation with fear and trembling? Well, that comes to this practical aspect. The message is really this. Let your salvation be worked out of your life or flesh out the message of the gospel. Look, when God saved me, what did he do with my sin? Okay, you can answer that question. I know it's Sunday morning. You're not supposed to do that, right? But what did God do with my sin? gone been washed away this isn't a tough question this isn't a trick question either all right when i got saved god took care of my sin he did in fact as far as my standing before god we we call it the word is sanctification there's so many things to be taught about that we don't have time this morning to go there and share all the things about it but one of the truths that happens when i get saved is that all my sins past present and future are all taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ, all washed away. And every time God sees me, he sees me as, a word used in the, the Bible, justified. Completely, totally righteous. There is no sin. It's all removed. And as far as my standing before God, I'm saved. My sins have all been cared for. Every sin is under the blood of Jesus Christ. But I don't always live that way. I still sin. It'd be nice, wouldn't it, if once you got saved, it's like God washed it all away and then I don't have any problem with it and I don't do it. But the truth is, I do. And what Paul was bringing out in verse 12 is not get saved, but he's saying work out, flesh out, if you would, your salvation. When God saved you, he removed all the sin. So live like it. Live like your sins have been removed. Live like someone who has been cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Live like someone who has, gotten, has been given the greatest gift that has ever been offered to mankind, because it is. Live like someone who's been forgiven. Live like someone whose sins have been taken away. When a Christian lives in sin, it's totally contrary to the whole, to the whole picture of what God did for us. He took care of all our sins as a gift and now what he desires is that I start to live like he made me I start to live like what he did for me that my life is just totally willing to say okay God you've done this for me and I want to show everyone around me the wonderful salvation God's given and you know you do that by being obedient and so it's a practical thing 
flesh out the message of the gospel in the way that you live. You name the name of Christ, you claim to be part of his family, allow the gospel to revolutionize your actions. Have you ever had someone say this? Well, I stopped going to church because of hypocrites in the church. Or I don't want to go to church because I got a coworker and he goes to church and he's no good. Look, anyone who's living that way and isn't a good testimony is not following what verse 12 is talking about in this passage. He's saying, look, let people see what God's done. It is inconsistent for a Christian to go their own way, to do their own thing, to live in sin and to be, if you would, a hypocrite. God wants us to be different. It's so practical. Look, you're saved. You claim to have it. So live it. Obedience. It's a personal thing. Work out your own salvation. You know, I, well, well, I, you know, I'm doing okay. No, God, God wants us to understand that it's my personal responsibility to obey. I can't blame others for failure. I can't excuse it by saying, so and so, whatever. This is something I'm supposed to do. God saved me. And now, no matter what anyone's doing around me, I just need to obey. I just want to follow him. It's a personal thing. But you know, it's a problematic thing. He had to bring that one out. But look at what it says in this passage. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do you know what those verses are, are, are telling us? Two things. First, we're to do it with fear and trembling. You say, what does that mean? Well, this tells us part of the problem. There are two phrases that remind us obedience is difficult. And that, those words, fear and trembling first. The idea is that without fear of trembling, I won't do that which is right. You say, what do you mean by that? I need a fear of God if I'm going to do the things that are right. That's right. That's right. What? You're supposed to be afraid of God. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Lost people need to be afraid of God. They're going to sometimes stand before the throne, someday stand before the front throne. They will do exactly what this passage says. They will bow the knee and say, Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then if they are lost, they will be sentenced and cast in the lake of fire. They need to fear God. It's a serious thing. And anyone who's unsaved should never want to even think about standing someday before God and doing exactly what that passage talks about because it's too late then. But you know, a Christian is supposed to fear God. We're supposed to have, and we always, we, we try to make it pretty. We talk about it being reverence, and it is. It does talk about, and the word does carry the idea of that I so revere God that I want to follow him. But you know, the same word is translating being afraid throughout scripture many times. It's literally that I'm, I, I would be afraid of, ooh, I'd be afraid, first of all, of breaking God's heart because when I sin, that's what I do. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed unto the day of redemption, God says. That I would so be concerned about who God is and what he's done for me, that I would have, and I'd have such a respect and reverence, but I'd also have such a fear that would say, I don't want his judgment. Because you know, God doesn't allow us to get away with sin and disobedience. Because God chastens his own. He spanks them. That's the term sometimes we use. Oh, oh, sorry. I'm supposed to use that these days because everyone tells you it's wrong. <clears throat> Though it's not. And the Bible tells us it's not. But that's, that's another message for another time, you know. But the truth is I should fear God's wrath and God's judgment. Not eternally. You know, here's the truth. No matter what sin a Christian commits, if they're part of the family of God, they're saved but I should fear the fact that God does not tolerate sin. God will judge sin. I should fear the fact that someday I will stand before God and give account for what I've done, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And if I don't have anything to offer him, my works will all be burned up, the Bible talks about. Only the things that are tested by fire and remain, the gold, silver, and precious stones will remain. I should fear God so that I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to and I'm coming to that day saying, I want to be different. So it is something that I need to do with fear and trembling. Uh, have you ever been moved to do something by fear? Uh, we used to, to take, in the former ministry, kids to camp at the Bill Rice Ranch. I wonder if you've ever heard of that place before. 
because we still take kids to the camp at the, at the Rice Ranch. But um, one of the early years that I took young people there, we had a counselor who had served in the military, and he was in charge of our room. They have dorm rooms that's like two or three or four churches or whatever might be all in, in one big room. There's like, I don't know, 30 people in one of those rooms, the guys' rooms or whatever. And, um, and so uh, he was in charge of our room. At the end of each night, they have a little devotional time. And then he gave his instructions the first night of camp. When we go to bed, it's time to go to bed. I mean, he, he was kind of the, mil, you know, the military guy, so he's just, he's just laying it out. Don't want to hear any talking. Don't want anything going on. Don't want any messing around. It's time to sleep. And when we get up in the morning, we'll get going. Get, you know. And so he's, he's going through this thing. He gets it done. Lights are turned out. It lights out. And there's a whisper going on. Now, now I was the kind of uh, uh, pastor working with the group that I... I was just about to say something when, out of nowhere, this voice says, I said I want it quiet in here! Man, my heart starts pounding. You could have heard a pin drop the rest of the week. There went no talking after lights out. Lights were out. That was it. These teens had a fear of the counselor. They change their actions. And God wants us to have the same. A, a, a fear of God that says, I just don't want to disappoint him in any way. Um, I want to obey. Now, there's another pro problematic thing. Look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do, do you realize this? I, John 15 says these words, and they're very important words. For without me, you know them, don't you? For without me, ye can do nothing. Now, if you look at those from a practical standpoint, you say, that doesn't make sense because I can do a lot of things without him. And, and it's true, I can, but I cannot do anything to please God without God's help. So here's the truth. If I go out and I witness in my own strength, God wasn't pleased. It's kind of scary, isn't it? If I do the things that are right today, but I do it in my own strength and my own ability, and I'm not relying upon God, and I'm not trusting him, and I'm not dependent and relying upon him, I, I haven't done anything that God was pleased with. You say, well, wait a second. If I read my Bible this morning, but I only read it in my own strength and my own ability, I didn't please God. Because God said, for without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing that pleases God unless you do it through abiding in him and his strength. And this verse says that very thing. Look, to will, to actually want to do it, and the ability to do it lies in Jesus Christ, lies in God. So when I obey, I need to obey with his strength, trusting and relying upon him. God, I can't do this on my own. Today, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible, not because... I'm supposed to read my Bible, but because, Lord God, I'm trusting you to give me the strength to do that which is right, and I want to please you today. And, Lord, I'm going to seek to be a witness, not because, well, I'm supposed to be a witness, and we'll talk about that and bring it up, but because, Lord God, I'm going to trust you to give me the strength and give your spirit the, the opportunity to work in and through me, and you shall receive power after that. The Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. Dear God, I need you. And that's how we're supposed to approach obedience. I can't obey God and please God unless I allow him to do it in and through me. Lord God, give me the wonder and give me the ability to do that which is right. Obedience. They said, man, you took a long time on that, Pastor. I know. But it's an important message, and it's a message found throughout the scriptures over and over. So look, as you've obeyed, Keep doing it. Keep going. And that would be the same command you and I have today. But that's not the only command. Look at verse 14. Yeah, we had to get to that one. You can't skip the verse. Do most things without murmuring or disputing. I'm going to write my own translation of the Bible. I, I And I want to put it that way. But that's not what we find, is it? Okay, when God gave us this by inspiration, he said... Do 
all things. It is interesting. You've obeyed always, now do all things. I mean, Paul is leaving no wiggle room in these verses. So, second word is attitude. So, not only do I need to obey, but I need to do it all the time with the right attitude. Without murmuring or disputing. <sighs> Don't complain. Like I said earlier, this is one of those days you're just not going to be able to get away with, with it. You're just, you're just going to be confronted. Just face it. Because if you say, I obey all the time and I obey with the right attitude. Wow. Great. Praise the Lord for that. I, I'd like to know, how, you know your, your, your secret a little bit on that one. But uh, here's the question. Do you always do it with the right attitude? You do it without complaining, without murmuring. Uh, we've been hitting on this with the children of Israel. I wonder why. Because the children of Israel had this problem, and it's not just the children of Israel that had that problem, or God wouldn't have put it here in Philippians, where Paul just like makes this little remark, do all things without murmuring or disputing. All things. He's getting a point. We never have an excuse not only to disobey, but we never have a right to complain. So don't complain. Uh, do you complain about things? Do you complain about the traffic? Do you complain about the workload your boss is giving you? Do you complain about your, your mate to others and the things that she or he isn't doing? Do you, do you complain about, about your relatives? I know you never do those things, but God knew that some people do. And so in this passage, he says, hey, don't complain. Here you are, you, you're, you're at work and, uh, and you're given a task. The boss comes in, drops a new project on the desk, says priority. The only thing is, Earlier in the day, he gave you another one, and the day before that, he gave you two others. You already have three on your plate, and, you, and they're all priorities. So now you got another one. So what's your attitude? Now, you might not say anything, but how well do you take the extra load that's just been put on your plate? Yeah, well, I don't say anything outwardly because I don't want to lose my job. But what's going on? Doesn't he understand I got all this stuff already on me? I don't know how I could get all this stuff done in time. Or you or a coworker, you go out to lunch with them and you start talking about your workload. Okay, that never happens, right? It never happens to you, but it does to me. So here's a challenge that I I am here's here's my goal this week. I'm I'm seeking to have a no complaint day. And that doesn't mean, oh, well, actually, I might do it. I'm just not going to listen to any complaints. All right, that would be a good one. But, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, God challenged me to have a no-complaint day myself. And I've already been trying to work on it, and I realize that I have work to do. Um, especially, <laughs> you know, driving. Come on, if I were to ask you, you'd say, yeah, Pastor, drive. No-complaint day. That means I am just not going to complain. I'm not going to complain about how slow the old man is driving in front of me. I'm not going to complain about the weather. I'm not going to complain about it being hot, being cold, being whatever. Uh, I'm not going to complain about, um, about problems and issues that have come up in the day. I, my goal this week is to have at least one no-complaint day. Will you take that challenge? That's good. Let's do it. Then, here, next week, then take the challenge to have two no-complaint days. And if you and I will start doing that by Christmas, we're going to be a lot happier people. It's true. Now, uh, it's just not, not going to just happen. And here's the truth. I, there's not a human being who doesn't struggle with that. W whether it's complaining about things at work, how things are going, how slow it is, uh, co complaining about 
complaining about getting the wrong part. Don't, don't even talk to me, Brother Duncan, about that. Getting the wrong part that I have to now go and order another one because it's not the right part. Um, there's just so many things in life that we just complain about and complain and complain. God says, do most everything. God says, do all things without murmuring. Okay, will you take that challenge? We do that? Sweet. By God's grace, I'm going to ask God to give me at least one day, no complaint day. That means I need to start thinking about this. I need to pray about it in the morning. God, I need your help because I complain about a lot of things. And here's the tr- here, honestly, we don't realize it until we start to think about it. Seriously, preparing this message, driving to lunch. Hey, buddy, the light turned green. Oh, I blew it. Didn't get the day, by the way. Just ruined it right there. Uh, Anytime, get off your phone. I I love to talk to people. Get off your phone. Drive. I know, you never do that. Okay, that's got to go on my no complaint day. Just not going to complain. Not going to complain about anything God's given me. All right, so... So maybe you've got a project to do because I do. This week, my goal is to have one no complaint day. And when I catch myself complaining, I'm going to do what God has told me to do and what I already have started to practice. Dear God, that was sin. Forgive me for murmuring. I need your help. And you may find that you're doing that quite a bit. But if you'll start paying attention, maybe it'll make a difference. Do all things without murmuring or disputing. You know what disputing? Don't argue with people about it. You know, some people do what they're told, but they argue all the way. They let it be known that they aren't happy and they don't think it's the best decision, but I'll do it. Sure. Boss doesn't know what he's talking about, but I'll do it. Prove to him that it's not going to work. Just the uh, complaining, contending, are just going to have no murmuring, no complaint day by God's grace. Third word, witness. Look at verse 15. Uh, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Witness, why are you here on this earth? As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a purpose. A pastor told this story. He said a headhunter, a guy who goes out and hires corporation, corporate executives for other, from other firms, told this story. He told this preacher, he said, he, he said, when I get an executive I'm trying to hire for something else, I like to disarm him. I, I offer him a drink. I take my coat off. I undo my tie. I throw up my feet. I talk about baseball, football, family, whatever, until he's all relaxed. Then, when I think I've got him relaxed, I lean over. I look at him square in the eye, and I say, what is your purpose in life? And the guy told the preacher, he said, it's amazing. Top executives in businesses all over fall apart when you ask them that question. Get silent. They don't know what to say. Then he said, well, I was on, I was interviewing this fellow the other day. I had him all disarmed. I mean, I had my feet up on his desk. I was talking about football. I leaned up and I said, what's your purpose in life, Bob? And he said without blinking an eye, to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. And the guy said, for the first time in my career, I was speechless. Because he got it. He understood. Here is a guy that understood what Christian living is all about. It's holding forth the word of life. That's what's talked about in this in these verses. Verses 15 begins. Actually, it starts with verse 14. Do you know why you need no complaint days? Because no complaint days 
are a testimony to a lost world that God has made a difference in your life because everyone complains. But when you're this, I am not going to complain about anything, people will notice. They will. Might even lose some friends. That's right. Because misery loves company. But he says, the reason we don't do these things is that we might be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I'm supposed to shine as a light in the world. I need these no complaint days because that is one way, one way of many, that I shine before a lost world, that things are different in my life. God has made a difference with me. And so when I live this way, I am going to be testifying to a lost world. So understand this. we got to see, first of all, the work of witness. See, witnessing is not just standing up and saying, let me tell you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let me go through the Romans Road. I've got a bunch of Romans Road verses for you. You know, you know where witnessing starts? It starts with your walk, your work. It starts with how you live life so that there's no one that would ever point at you and say, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to hear anything about God because of the hypocrites at church so-and-so goes to. See, witnessing starts with the way that I'm living, the work of witness. Um, listen, to, listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, through, you know, verse, um, let me see if I can get it right. In, in 3, 14 to 16, he said, But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. In Christ. You know what those verses say? When you live the Christian life as you're supposed to live the Christian life, it's going to be a testimony before the world. They may make accusations, but you need to be ready because God will open opportunities through a right life. So the work of witnessing is just living right. You say, well, I don't know if I can really accept that. Well, then listen to the words of Jesus Christ. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your... Bible verse memory, you know, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Witness starts with your work, with your life, with what you are. But then witness is, has to involve your words. Do you see that? Okay, so look, no one will ever be saved just because you lived a good life and because you were different. There's got to come a time when you share with them the word. It's got to come a time because faith comes by someone living the Christian life. No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So my friends, Christians, if they're going to be a witness, need to live right. They need their lips to get involved and they need to speak and hold forth their word of life so that people need to hear from me how they can be saved. They need to hear the truth holding forth the word of life. And Paul said, do that. He said, you know why? Because I want to rejoice in the day of Christ. Here, here's the idea. This is really powerful. Paul said, someday I'm going to give account to God for what I've done with you folks. And you know what he said? He said, if you folks are not a witness for Jesus Christ, if you're not living this way, if you're not doing these things, I will consider my life to have been wasted, empty, vain. He said, I don't want to be disappointed in that day. And you don't either. So live, right, be this witness for Jesus Christ. So, so we have what words? Obedience, attitude, witness. I didn't know if I actually told you that third word. The last word is sacrifice. Verses 17, 18. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul has spoken about suffering that comes for our faith. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. He talked about suffering that came for Jesus Christ as he was doing the will of the Father and everything else. And he understood this, and he understood it clearly. Living for Jesus Christ brings trouble. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus, he told to a young preacher, shall suffer persecution. It's true. 
Trouble will come when you live for Jesus Christ. And you need to have an attitude that says, hey, whatever the cost, I am going to be willing to sacrifice all to live for Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's attitude. As he closes this out, he says, you know what? If I'm offered, you know what he's talking about? If I die as a result of my service to you and to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because I'm serving you because I'm serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I joy. <laughs> That's about the last thing you think about joying in. He said, if I die for my faith, I'm ready. And I will rejoice if God chooses to take my life as I just live my life for him in a life of sacrifice, selflessness. And my friends, that's the attitude God wants us to have. And in fact, he said this, that the believers there would also joy and rejoice, not because Paul was gone, but because he served Jesus Christ. In fact, for the same cause also, you do joy and rejoice with me. Look, whatever, whatever happens, I'm just ready to sacrifice my life and serve Jesus Christ with my all. My friends, those four words are very important things for every Christian. And, and if, we're, if, if most people are honest, there's, you've got work to do in some. Obedience. Attitude, no complaint day. And they're going to keep working it after that. But light shining. Living a life that is a good testimony and sharing with others how they can come to faith in Jesus Christ and then willing to sacrifice. That's the message that Paul gave these people. That's the message that God gave us for today. So, where are you at? If you've never been saved, you need Jesus Christ. But if you've been saved, God's got a life for you to live. Will you? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.